Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today on The Green Rush, we have a very special episode as we're rebroadcasting a recent press conference held by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, better known as MAPS, and the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, also known as PSFC, to announce the closing of their Capstone Challenge Grant Program, which raised $30 million in all in funding. Over 2,500 supporters first contributed over $10 million in gifts, ranging from $1 to $1 million, which unlocked the $10 million matching grant organized by Tim Ferriss and the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative. In all, the program raised its $30 million to fund the final push of the Phase 3 FDA trials around MDMA's use to treat PTSD. The press conference was hosted by our very own Lewis Goldberg. On the conference with Lewis was MAPS founder Rick Doblin, Tim Ferriss, Joe Green, founder of PSFC, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation's CEO Amy Emerson, and Wall Street's titan Alan Fournier. This is a truly fascinating conversation and an important moment for the future of psychedelic psychotherapy. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to the press conference with a quick pivot first to Lewis for some more information on today's show. It's me, Lewis. You guys haven't seen me for a while. I've taken a break from the green rush and I'm going to be dipping in and out, but I won't be back full time, possibly for quite a while. But I am here today because I wanted to talk to you about this episode. And for the past couple of years, you'll have noticed that the Green Rush has added in conversations about the growing psychedelic industry. And there are many reasons for this. But first and foremost is the United States and the world is facing a massive mental health crisis. One of my coworkers dubbed what we are all facing as CTSD or the Corona Traumatic Stress Disorder. And as we all know, the impact of this pandemic cannot be understated. I was reading CNN, an article in July of 2020 this year, and it said, quote, a new CDC study and survey found that almost 41% of respondents are struggling with mental health issues stemming from the pandemic, both related to the coronavirus pandemic itself and measures put in place to contain it, including physical distancing and the stay at home orders. Now, this survey found that 40.9% of respondents reported at least one mental health or behavioral health condition. 31% said they'd experienced symptoms of anxiety or depression. 26 said they'd experienced trauma or stressor-related disorder symptoms. 13% said they'd started or increased substance use. And astoundingly and sadly, 11% said they'd seriously considered suicide in the last 30 days. This is really unbelievable. We are all under such tremendous stress. If you just look at our society, normally we're under stress. And if you layer in the coronavirus and it's just gone over the top, 
The challenge is that there are few effective treatments for mental health diseases, or what are known as central nervous system or CNS maladies. According to psychiatry.org, PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, affects approximately 3.5% of U.S. adults every year. And an estimated 1 in 11 people will be diagnosed with PTSD in their lifetime. Women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with PTSD. Now, what is this? What is post-traumatic stress disorder? I mean, many people have heard of it and you know, know that it's shell shock. But if you do a little research, people with PTSD have intense disturbing thoughts and feelings related to their experience that lasts long after a traumatic event has ended. They may relive the event through flashbacks or nightmares, and they may feel sadness, fear, or anger. And they may feel detached and estranged from other people. There's no empathy. There's no understanding of what's going on inside of them. People with PTSD may avoid situations or people that remind them of the traumatic event. And they may have strong negative reactions to something as ordinary as a loud noise or an accidental touch. This is really sad. And what's even sadder is there are no effective approved treatments, let alone cures for this disorder. But there is a solution in the FDA pipeline. MDMA or ecstasy, a drug developed more than 100 years ago by Merck, is being seen as mixed with psychotherapy in what is now being known as psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy as being unbelievably effective. Now, MDMA is not a traditional psychedelic drug. Rather, it is known as an empathogen, and its effects include euphoria or a sense of general well-being and happiness increased self-confidence, sociability, and the perception of facilitated communication, and tactogenic effects, which ultimately mean increased empathy or feelings of closeness with others and oneself, or being able to feel what another person is feeling, or being able to look at how you are feeling and being able to do this in a safe fashion. It also has relaxation and reduced anxiety effects, um, increased emotionality, a sense of inner peace, and can induce mild hallucinations. Now, I've never tried ecstasy, um, but I am absolutely fascinated by what's going on. Now, this drug was scheduled by the FDA as Schedule 1 in 1985, but it was used by many, many therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists in the 1970s to help with couples counseling. Well, the year after it was scheduled, Rick Doblin started the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. And slowly but surely, Doblin has worked with the FDA to get MDMA approved as an effective therapeutic agent to treat PTSD. Now let's fast forward all the way to this year. Now I'm doing that because the history of MAPS and Rick Doblin is absolutely fascinating. And I would strongly encourage you to, to, to go back and read it for yourself. Um, and Rick is somebody who I have tremendous affection for and respect for. I mean, he is, he is, there's nobody quite like Rick Doblin. So let's fast forward to this year. MAPS is close to getting the FDA to approve MDMA along with psychotherapy to treat PTSD. And you should read on the MAPS website, which is maps.org, all of the data, the press releases on where the trials stand. But right now, MDMA is in phase three testing. And it looks like by the end of 2021 or 2022, the FDA will grant approval for using MDMA with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD. This is mind-blowing. This would be the first 
drug, let alone psychedelic drug, to be approved by the FDA to treat PTSD as a curative. And I don't use that word lightly. I mean, if you hear Rick talk about this, if you see the data, you will be blown away. So this has been an unbelievably expensive effort by Doblin and MAPS. And MAPS is a not-for-profit organization. Um, and what they have done is get the drug just about to the finish line. And it was estimated that it would take about $30 million or so to get to FDA approval. Well, the episode that follows, and yeah, I know this is a long intro, but it's worth it, I promise you, is the press conference led by PSFC, or the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, uh, and, which is led by Joe Green, about how they raised, through donations, $30 million in just about three months to take MDMA and MAPS through the FDA approval process. Now, I'm not going to steal the thunder of the press conference, but I am proud to have been a part of this conference, and I am proud to be someone who is helping to tell the story of psychedelics and help you understand why this is such an important issue. And with that, now on to the press conference. Good afternoon. I'm Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications. Welcome to the PSFC and MAPS press conference detailing the capstone fundraising efforts. Please note for any and all attendees, this conference is being recorded. Additionally, any questions you might have, please enter into the Q&A tab at the bottom of the screen. In your question, please note who you would like to answer, and we will get through as many questions at the end of the presentation as possible. Before we begin, I want to note for all attendees that we will be talking about a treatment today whose potential is still being researched and has not yet been approved by the FDA. In fact, that is exactly why we are here. And I will let our incredible group of panelists take it over. And today's participants in order of speaking are Rick Doblin, founder and executive director of MAPS, Joe Green, co-founder of the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, Tim Ferriss, author, entrepreneur, and podcaster, podcaster extraordinaire, Amy Emerson, CEO of the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, which is the research and drug development arm of MAPS, and Alan Fournier, a major donor to the Capstone campaign. With that said, I would like to turn this over to Rick Doblin, the founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Rick, the Zoom conference is yours. Thank you very much. Um, in 1984, as part of my studies to become a therapist, I helped a suicidal PTSD patient get better through MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. That's when I realized MDMA's incredible therapeutic potential. A few months later, DEA moved to criminalize MDMA since it had escaped the therapeutic circles and was being sold recreationally as ecstasy. I helped lead an effort to keep the therapeutic use of MDMA legal, but we failed and MDMA was criminalized in 1985. I started MAPS in 86 as a nonprofit pharma company to bring back the legal therapeutic use of MDMA and other psychedelics. 31 years later, in 2017, FDA declared MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD a breakthrough therapy based on our phase two data that showed that 56% of our chronic, severe, treatment-resistant PTSD patients no longer met the requirements of a PTSD diagnosis two months after the last treatment. 
And one year later, two thirds no longer met the requirements for a diagnosis for PTSD. People kept getting better. The VA's National Center for PTSD estimates that there are 8 million PTSD sufferers in the US alone, including veterans, first responders, and a more hidden epidemic of women who've suffered from sexual assault and domestic abuse. There are over 1 million veterans receiving disability payments for PTSD from the VA, estimated to cost about $15 billion a year in disability payments. More veterans die at home by their own hand than on the battlefield, now over 6,000 a year. Our treatment itself isn't actually MDMA. It's psychotherapy that MDMA makes more effective. MDMA reduces the fear associated with traumatic memories so people aren't overwhelmed and can process their traumas, place them in the past, learn lessons, and move on with their lives. MDMA is administered only a few times in a several month process with the goal being curative rather than palliative, like the SSRIs that are approved by the FDA for PTSD that are meant to be taken daily, sometimes for months or, or years or decades even. We're now in phase three, which is the final phase of research to prove safety and efficacy in order to uh, apply to the FDA and other regulatory agencies around the world for approval for prescription use. As we approach the midpoint of our first phase three trial, we put together the budget for the final push. We realized we needed to raise 30 million in 2020 to complete phase three and prepare to bring, bring the treatment to patients. Uh, needless to say, that was a very intimidating amount, uh, especially for complete donations. Um, I approached Joe Green at the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative in January of this year, asking Joe and PSFC to partner with us to raise the 30 million, which we decided to call the Capstone Campaign. We'd been working closely with PSF for a few years. They'd been a major funder and a partner in bringing expertise to MAPS from outside experts uh, from pharma. Um, in addition, um, Tim Ferriss has helped us uh, tremendously as well. I'm excited now to introduce Joe, the president of PSFC. We could not have completed Capstone without PSFC and Tim Ferriss. MAPS plans to work with PSFC to raise additional funds for globalization of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD starting in Europe. Now, Joe, it's my pleasure to... Uh, turn it over to you and that I've uh, made my time limit. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Doblin and Brevity. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Rick. I was, um, I was watching last night this documentary, The Power of Myth with Joseph Campbell that actually Tim Ferriss recommended. And they were describing a hero and I realized that Rick was the person in my life that I consider to be a hero. So it's really been uh, wonderful getting to know you and having dedicated your entire life to this one cause. So we really are in the midst of a mental health crisis, um, and PTSD is unfortunately just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, ben Sessa, who's a leading psychedelic researcher, said to me once, and this, this really helped me understand it, that said mental health today is where physiological health was in 1900. We understand some epidemiology and we can treat some symptoms, but we rarely cure anything. And he, he says psychedelics are like antibiotics. They cure the bug, not just lower the fever. And there's research 
across many leading universities, including Johns Hopkins, where Tim Ferriss has been deeply involved in setting up a center and really showing the promise to treat a variety of conditions from depression to alcoholism to eating disorders and, of course, PTSD. And unfortunately, current treatments are just not working. From 1999 to 2014, spending on psychiatric drugs in the U.S. nearly quadrupled. And yet, sadly, in that same period of time, the suicide rate has increased by 20, uh, 24%. So I co-founded the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, or in the spirit of Rick and Brevity, PSFC, uh, along with Graham Boyd in 2017. And our... our belief was that psychedelic medicine could revolutionize mental health, yet for decades it had been systemically underfunded. When we got started just three years ago, you could count on two hands the people who had given over a million dollars to fund psychedelic science. And now, three years after we started, uh, we're really proud that PSFC is the leading community of philanthropists funding psychedelic research. We're about 40 members, all of whom have committed between several hundred thousand and several million dollars. And it's really exciting to be here today announcing the Capstone campaign's completion of $30 million. So I want to tell you about like how we settled on supporting MAPS. So PSFC was the first group to bring pharma investor level due diligence to psychedelic philanthropy. And our thesis was that the most important goal was to get any one of the psychedelic therapies to be approved by FDA and brought into medical use. We believe this would then normalize the entire psychedelic field and open up no, sort of the standard institutional sources of funding from government to pharma, which so far have not been involved in psychedelics. If you had any other field of medicine with the evidence of psychedelics, but without some of its history, it would have been made a medicine long ago. And so after surveying the field of psychedelic drug development, we decided to focus our support on MDMA for PTSD. Our analysis concluded that the capable MAPS team and their strong clinical data made them likely to be the first psychedelic therapy to get FDA approval. And so uh, as Rick was, was saying, we, we got together to, to work on the capstone campaign. We had already before that raised about $9 million to support the MDMA work. And, um, when I sat down with Rick, it was, it was certainly exciting, but also intimidating to try to raise $30 million in a year. Um, so our first step was to put together some independent due diligence. And we turned to a guy named Atul Pandey, who's an MD psychiatrist who we worked with in the past. Uh, he's semi-retired, but has spent his entire career in psychiatric drugs, starting with Prozac. And what he came back with was he said, look, this $30 million budget is an accurate budget. And if you raise the money, you have a high chance of success. And if he were still at a pharma company, he would give us a full green light. So the next step is we thought it was important to put together a so-called inside round. Before we asked new people, we wanted our existing supporters to double down. And I'm really proud that every MAPS board member and some additional PSFC funds put together $10 million for this inside round. So then we were on a great roll and then a global pandemic hit. Um, and this made a difficult task seem even more daunting. Uh, in the past, we had raised money through in-person gatherings. And so we tried to transition that to Zoom, uh, which was really great for attendance and conversation, but it was pretty challenging for closing donations. And I reached out to my old friend, Tim Ferriss, uh, and asked him to be a guest on his, one of our Zoom gatherings. And he countered with a really much better idea uh, of Rick being on the podcast. And I was actually pretty surprised Rick had never been on the podcast before. Um, and it just, he was excited at that opportunity. Um, it's been such an honor to work with Tim to put together the Capstone Challenge and watch how much his support and credibility has brought in new donors. So now I'm excited to introduce my friend, Tim Ferriss. Thanks, Joe. 
it's it's been quite uh, a joy to work with everyone on this call and to get to know everyone. And I'll, I'll try to keep my comments brief since uh, that is not my strong suit with my, you know, uh, <laughs> Odyssey length podcasts. But I'll start with something, an anecdote, and that is at, at many conferences where I've spoken, I've often polled the audience. I've asked for a raise of hands for anyone who knows someone whose life has been damaged or destroyed by addiction, raise your hand. And whether it is lower socioeconomic class, higher socioeconomic class, male, female, white, black, in between, it doesn't matter, all hands go up. Then I ask, how many of you know someone who takes antidepressants but is still depressed? And once again, every hand goes up. So I, I really feel like no one in this country or probably in the world on some level is untouched by these conditions that we're talking about, and whether directly or indirectly. Growing up, my best friend died of a fentanyl overdose. Uh, my aunt died of Percocet plus alcohol. I've suffered from depression my entire life up until five years ago, uh, which uh, I'm sure many people can read between the lines with respect to that and almost killed myself in 1999. It was just pure luck that that didn't happen. And I won't spend a lot of time on that because I've spoken about it separately. Uh, I began funding neuroscience studies in around 2008. And these were not psychedelic related. They were uh, associated with UCSF and uh, a number of def different things, including age-related cognitive decline and reversal thereof. And as I continued to place bets in science, as I had done for a long time in the world of startups, uh, came across psychedelics as very interesting because they were an uncrowded bet. They demonstrated, at least in the literature that certainly I, I and many others have reviewed, very low toxicity when we're talking about uh, the targets, like, or I should say the, the compounds like MDMA or psilocybin, rapid onset and very durable effects. So these are not maintenance drugs that you take every week or every day. Uh, often it's two or three sessions and you can see an improvement of conditions 12 months later, like, like Rick said, which is, is astonishing and sort of defies almost any conventional explanation available within psychiatry. And that, that was very interesting to me because I'm always looking for Archimedes levers. That is <laughs> small points uh, of, of leverage where you can apply a little and get a lot out, whether that's in my investments with, you know, the Uber, uh, Shopify, Alibaba, et cetera, where I've been very, very early. I'm looking for the same thing in science and I'm very actually conservative in that respect. So I ended up uh, w coming to the conclusion that capstone and MDMA uh, assisted psychotherapy as the tip of the spear was really what would pave the way for redefining psychiatric treatment using compounds such as psychedelics. And it would open the door or close the door to things like psilocybin also. And had Rick on the podcast, we had a microphone malfunction on Rick's side and we ended up postponing and rescheduling and after that happened, uh, I got antsy as often happens. And I said, well, all right, they've already raised 10 million of the 30 is an inside round, which is an incredible start. The middle 10 is the hardest to raise. Why don't, 
screw it. Let's just try to raise that 10 as quickly as possible so that when we, when we re-record, we have a, a challenge grant uh, available for, for news. And uh, working alongside uh, people on this call, we were able to, to get 10 million together in about a week, which is, is pretty astonishing. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, you know, we could talk about why that happened. But again, uh, people are touched indirectly or directly. And I was putting my money where my mouth was. I was putting a million of my own as a commitment. And so when we finally re-recorded, we had Peter Rahal of RX Bar fame, uh, John Griffin, those in the investing world will certainly recognize that name, Blake Mykoski, yours truly, and then the, uh, the Cohen Foundation, so, so uh, Stephen and Alexandra Cohen, uh, who really came in uh, with, with an incredible uh, amount of capital and commitment. Uh, and we've seen that before with Johns Hopkins and elsewhere. So that's, that's my story. Uh, that that, uh, that I'll uh, I'll keep to that for now, and I'd, I'm really thrilled to introduce someone that I've been getting to know uh, more and more over the last few months, and that is Alan Fournier. So, Alan, I thought you know maybe we could begin with why you decided to engage with this. Of all the things, I know you 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 largely stay in the shadows. Uh, try try to keep quiet. Um, yeah. Well, I first, I first heard about the psychedelic research underway uh, listening to a lecture a couple of years ago, and it highlighted what was going on at John Hopkins with the can cancer patients that were uh, depressed due to the diagnosis. And I was just you know, blown away by the idea that a couple of treatments, uh, therapeutic treatments, could really change uh, those, those folks. Um, and impact their lives. I, I emailed Roland Griffiths and uh, he was kind enough to take a meeting. I went down to see him and I said, you know, how can I, how can I make this happen uh, for people? You know, what is the tip of the spear in terms of um, getting product to market for therapeutic use? And uh, he, he focused on USONA at that time that's doing psilocybin and, and depression work. And I've been involved with Bill Litton and Carrie Turnbull, a number of people on that, on that psilocybin work, which um, is really, really amazing. I was aware of what MAPS was doing, but I wasn't close to it until a friend of mine heard your podcast and said, hey, you got to listen to this and hear what these guys are doing. So I, I listened to the podcast with Rick and um, then, you know, through a mutual friend connected with you and uh, had a nice discussion. Uh, reached out to Graham Board, Boyd, who I met uh, in California about a year ago, and uh, was very impressed uh, with what PSFC was doing in terms of due diligence. And, uh, and that led to a uh, conversation with Amy Emerson, who we'll hear from next, who is running the, the corporation within MAPS, non nonprofit corporation that is developing um, uh, MDMA. And, um, you know, I, and, and finally Rick, and I was just, you know, blown away by how professional this organization is and how far along they were. So I was, I was excited to do, you know, my little part here in terms of trying to push this thing over the finish line. Um, and, you know, I should say that this really resonated for me as a result of a personal connection I have to PTSD. Uh, my father fought in World War II um, in the Ardennes forest and was uh, wounded. And I think there were 14,000 Americans that died over a four week period in those, in those battles. 
And, you know, he came back and there was no such thing as a PTSD diagnosis in those days. And uh, like many uh, that have PS, PTSD, he, he uh, treated himself with alcohol and was an alcoholic for most of his life. Um, last nine years of his life, he, uh, he stopped drinking, but he died at 65 uh, about 30 years ago. And so for me, the opportunity to help people that, you know, serve their country and protected us, whether it's law enforcement, first responders, uh, people suffering from other kinds of abuse, I mean, this is just a, a great opportunity. Thank you, Alan. Sure. Uh, Amy, would you like to, to hop in? Yes, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Rick, Tim, Alan, and uh, all of PSFC. I feel really fortunate to be here with you all and um, really grateful for the work that you've done to support us. Uh, I'm also very fortunate that my early career in research was at a very innovative biotech startup, and I was working on oncology and HIV treatments in the device world, which was pretty new in the early 90s. And then this experience was followed by about 15 years of working at Chiron, which then also became Novartis Vaccines. And I was able to work in all phases of drug development from first-in-man studies all the way through phase three to approvals. And I think this combination of innovative and kind of late stage work in public health treatments gave me a great background to understand how it could be possible to even take MDMA-assisted therapy through the drug development process with FDA, and in fact, internationally is our hope. Um, so in 2003, I met Rick and I was really drawn to his vision of this treatment, as well as his dedication to doing this as a nonprofit and for the public benefit. This was really aligned with my ideals and my desire to contribute, as well as an enjoyment of finding a really good challenge, which this was, and a chance to build a really incredible team. And, um, you know, I had a strong belief that psychedelic medicine had the potential to give people their lives back. Um, and thankfully, I met Rick early on before so many people were interested in this. And so I had an amazing opportunity in front of me. Um, and after working with Rick for about 2003, when we met to 2015, we had some good success in our phase two MDMA studies. And we saw about two thirds of the people um, in the studies had relief from the effects of their PTSD. So not everybody, this doesn't work for everybody, but that was quite positive for small phase two studies. Um, so at that point, we decided it was time to create a for-profit, but to do it in a different way. We did it as a wholly owned subsidiary of MAPS, the nonprofit. And this new structure uh, for us was to protect the ideal of working for public benefit over profit maximization and to bring forward a treatment that we were really passionate about. So the relationship, this interesting relationship between the two organizations allows my team at Public Benefit Corporation to really focus on the efforts to bring MDMA through the FDA process and allows MAPS to focus on policy, communication, education, harm reduction, and in partnership with PSFC, the fundraising that's needed to complete the work. The relationship with PSFC has made that ability to focus on the research even more of a reality with the completion of the capstone. And I'm very grateful for that. I will spend the money wisely on the research. <laughs> and PSFC has also um, provided more than just that monetary support. They've introduced us to some amazing trusted advisors who also believe in our mission and who are really looking for ways to give back and to ensure that we have the resources to continue to be successful. At this point in the process, we're about halfway through our phase three program. 
um, for MDMA to be approved as a treatment for PTSD. And like Rick said, it's, an, it's MDMA assisted psychotherapy and that part's very important to us. It's not just the drug. Uh, we're still investigating this potential and the risks of the potential and it's not yet approved by the FDA and I wanna be clear about that. <laughs> the first phase three is complete. It has a very, we had a very positive interim analysis in March. Um, thankfully, we were able to complete that before COVID really hit. And so we were able to move forward with completing that phase three. And then the funding from the Capstone campaign, which was also generously supported by Tim and his network and people like Alan, um, are giving us the resources to get through the next steps. So the next immediate step for us is a second phase three study. And the screening of the participants for that study start this month. And you can find enrollment information for that at mdmaptsd.org or on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, in addition, we have another exciting event coming up, which is the analysis of our first phase three data. So this will be a very revealing moment for us. It will give us much greater insight into the potential for this groundbreaking treatment and real clarity as to how we will complete the project. Um, our teams in both organizations have been working incredibly hard to make all of this happen during uncertain times. And I really want to thank the people that are all behind this and our sites that are um, doing this work. In parallel with working on the phase three program, we also need to start focusing and we are in the process of looking at plans for delivery of care and how to train therapists, as well as what's needed for additional approvals in international markets. And we'll, we'll be starting um, treatments in Europe, in fact, over the next couple of months. So the full completion of the US part and um, of the phase three program is expected in about 2022. And then that will be followed by submission of all the data to the FDA. And if successful, this will be the first psychedelic drug assisted therapy approved by the FDA. And it will be a new paradigm in delivering a mental health therapy. We take the responsibility of introducing this treatment very seriously. We feel our unique model of a public benefit corporation owned by a nonprofit is the best way to bring it forward for the benefit of all people suffering from traumatic symptoms of PTSD. And even more so during this time of COVID, we're seeing big increases. The people that we hope to serve are not only our vets, which we hear a lot about, but also people who have suffered from abuse and traumatic events in other ways. It's a silent epidemic in some ways, affecting at least 8 million Americans every year. Most commonly are women, people of color, gender non-conforming people, in fact, the women make up about 60% of the people treated in our studies. Uh, right now, we're continuing to expand our strategies, guided first by listening to what is needed. And these strategies, we hope, will ensure that we reach underserved populations as well, and that we begin to really address the stigma of seeking mental health treatments for all people. So, thank you. Thank you to the to the panelists. Uh, we are now open for Q&A. Um, if any of the attendees have questions, please type them into the Q&A tab at the bottom and we will try and get through as many as possible. Uh, the first question we have is for Rick. How long does it take for patients to form a therapeutic alliance on MDMA compared to just psychotherapy? Rick, you're on uh, mute. Sorry for that. Yeah, it's faster. Um, one of the things that MDMA does is it releases oxytocin, which is the hormone of um, love, nursing mothers, the hormone of connection. 
and that facilitates uh, building the therapeutic alliance. But first, we have three non-drug psychotherapy sessions with uh, usually, but not always, with a male-female co-therapy team, and that helps to build the therapeutic alliance. But then when the first MDMA session takes place, um, that really uh, cements it into place. So it's, it's faster, and then the therapy itself can go deeper. Uh, next question we have is for also for Rick. Do you feel the localized psychedelics de decriminalization movements may have indirectly helped MAPS reach this fundraising goal by raising greater awareness about the therapeutic potential of certain plants and fungi? And on the flip side, do you have any concerns that these activists going right to politics and pursuing legislative change could potentially undermine scientific research objectives? Well, bo both important questions. Um, I do feel that the decrim movement has only taken place after we've made a lot of progress with the research and also the uh, the Hopkins team and the NYU teams, the other teams that have worked with psilocybin. Um, so that that kind of um, preparation then changed a lot of people's attitudes and then they um, moved on towards uh, decrim. And I think that that does help. In fact, we've had some indications um, you know, that that changing of attitudes has made it more uh, comfortable, you could say, for regulators to move forward. I mean, the, the past has been that um, sort of non-medical use has been uh, driven kind of controversy and has led to uh, the crackdown that lasted for multiple generations. That's why we're only now sort of getting into phase three. But I think that the um, current movement now is, is really important. And also there's a lot of uh, potential benefits, um, you know, beyond just medicine for people, personal growth, spirituality. I, I think that the um, movement there does not endanger um, the research. I think that there are two separate tracks. You know, when we talk about the research, it's under controlled conditions with medically screened patients. It's a whole different uh, risk benefit calculation than when people, uh, you know, take it outside of research context. And so what, and also when people take things outside of research context, they don't even know what they're getting. Sometimes it's impure. And so I, I really think that the um, movements in parallel, that the sort of decrim efforts further help to destigmatize and make this research more comfortable and help people feel more comfortable seeking out therapy with psychedelics. We have another question, um, and this is for Rick and for uh, Amy. Um, I'm curious to know, has anybody else tried to study the effects of MDMA on PTSD before? And if not, why not? And why have you been the only ones to do this? Um, all right, well, I'll start. And, uh, um, so no, nobody else has. Um, the reason is that, well, first off, the sad part is that um, you know, we heard um, Alan talk about his father who had uh, PTSD from um, World War II. There, there was uh, so many people that also had PTSD from Vietnam. And yet, because of the backlash against the 60s, um, there's been no government funding for this. Um, MDMA and are in the domain. So pharma has not been interested because there's no uh, patent opportunities there. And there was just such a stigma because not only was MDMA, MDMA was, as I mentioned in my opening talk, initially a therapy drug, and it sort of escaped from the therapy drug and became 
um, a party drug known under the name of ecstasy. And so the, the controversy of all of that made it so that nobody really wanted to work towards developing this as a medicine. And so I felt that the only way to do it was going to be through um, nonprofit. And when I started MAPS in 1986, no drug had ever been made into a medicine by a nonprofit. You know, fortunately, I didn't know that at the time. But I, I think all of these things combined. The other big factor is that pharma doesn't understand psychotherapy. They understand medications. So if we, if we look at ketamine, S-ketamine, an isomer of ketamine, which has been approved by um, Johnson & Johnson and Janssen for depression, um, it's only administered as a pharmacological treatment without psychotherapy, which I think limits the effectiveness of it. Um, so I think it's, it's the unique combination of psychedelic plus psychotherapy with the emphasis on psychotherapy that made it so that um, we were the only ones that's done it. And still, um, the only other study that's been funded into the therapeutic use of MDMA that's not been funded by us was a study by Ben Sessa, who Joe talk, talked about at the very beginning, and it was um, into MDMA with alcoholism, with alcoholics. And the theory there was that when you help people process their trauma, then they might not need to escape in um, alcoholism or other drug abuse. And um, the results at the three-month follow-up for that study look really, really good. Uh, but of course, we need to keep looking at it uh, longer term. But so far, we're still the um, only ones working on MDMA. And um, we would welcome um, other people. Maybe, Amy, you could talk about all the IITs. That, that's an incredible situation. Yeah, an IIT is an investigator-initiated trial, and we have, as you can imagine uh, right now, especially during this time where psychedelics are uh, getting so much uh, notice, that we have a lot of researchers that come to us wanting to also do their own studies. So they come to us and make a research proposal, um, typically asking if we would provide the MDMA for the studies. So we look, we make sure they have a good proposal, we work with them on strategy and on design of their studies, um, but then they sponsor their own own study and we provide the support and the MDMA for it once they have approval to do so. And I would just say about there, there aren't other groups doing research of MDMA PTSD, but a lot of the research and the protocols and how we understood how to do this work was because of work that was done prior to anybody doing any research on this that was prior to it being scheduled. And so it was being used in that therapeutic context um, before we ever started to do this. Rick, I'm sure you have a lot more of that history. <laughs> yeah. So we've got a question for Joe. Um, you talked a little bit about what happened when COVID hit. Can you talk a little bit more about how you had to change your fundraising uh, strategies um, when you could not have more face-to-face -face meetings? Yeah. Um, I mean, my experience in fundraising certainly sort of high dollar amounts. It's really about the relationship in the community. And I think one thing that's been great is how how much people have gotten to know each other. I mean, I know Tim has gotten to know the MAPS team over many years, over some various travel and getting together in various different ways. And, um, and then, you know, with COVID, suddenly you can't do that anymore. And so we moved to try to have conversations over Zoom. And the upside of that is everyone was, especially kind of at the beginning of quarantine, seemed to be sitting at home without a whole lot to do. And so we had some really, really great conversations. We had Michael Pollan. We had uh, the author, Jared Diamond of Guns, Germs, and Steel. We had um, uh, 
whole, a whole number of leading psychedelic researchers, uh, Julie Holland. Um, but it was hard to sort of actually get people to make commitments. And we were, we were kind of actually getting pretty worried, you know, are we going to be able to do this? And, and frankly, also, understandably, there was a lot of philanthropic attention going towards relief of COVID. Um, and, you know, it, it's I, psychedelics have taught me more and more that the, the universe will deliver when it needs to. And um, it, it was kind of this just kind of serendipitous thing where with Tim having Rick on the podcast and the microphone not working and then Tim and I hustling over, we can talk about it too, over a period of like, I think it was seven days calling everybody we could think of to, um, to get this challenge grant put together. And I was just like, it was kind of just unbelievable how it happened. I don't know, Tim, you can chime in. Tim, you're muted. So I'm, so I'm not accustomed to muting myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I want to say first that I, I knew I was missing somebody. James Bailey was also someone who came to the table in a big way in that initial uh, challenge grant in informing in that and committing seven figures. So I want to, first of all, mention that because it's super important. And I, I would say the, the challenge and the pivot for me, we're both very natural in the fundraising, meaning many people had created policies of funding exclusively COVID-related issues for a period of time. And that, on one hand, seemed like it could have been a completely closed door related to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. But in my mind, they were fundamentally intertwined. Uh, Looking at the 600% by some media accounts, spikes in calls to suicide hotlines, looking at first responders, personally being in touch with senior attending physicians in hospitals in New York who are on the front lines treating an overwhelming volume of COVID patients, having to choose who lives and who dies based on how they can allocate ventilators, looking at the sort of the tide pulling back as a sign of this tsunami of Uh, mental health issues coming for me meant that these two things were very directly related and that the need for uh, amplified change through sort of assisted psychotherapy and the combination is very, very important. If we, if we think of psychedelics as nonspecific amplifiers on some level, the context matters and the support structure matters. Uh, so the the technology, so to speak, here I think is just as much the the dyad, the pairing of therapists, the protocols, the parts work, all of these things that go into this cocktail, including MDMA, that allow for these outstanding results. So I think that's that's critically important. Just like having an anesthesiologist working with morphine in a hospital is very different from injecting morphine under an overpass. These are fundamentally different things. The risk profiles, of course, totally different also. Uh, but from a fundraising perspective, it came down to making the, the, the connection between uh, COVID and the, the, the long-term impacts on mental health in this, in this country and elsewhere to the tool that we are discussing, which is this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and then also just coming to the table with my own 
you know, with my own ships, it makes it a lot easier to have a fundraising conversation when you're saying, Hey, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not doing myself. So <laughs> I, I have plenty of skin in the game. So that's, I mean, it's true with investing in anything. And I view this as an investment. It's not like a thoughtless, feel good, charitable thing for me. I just don't do that. This is, this is banking on results. And, uh, you know, I put small bets into maps early, just like I did with Hopkins. I saw how they used the capital, how they allocated it. And I felt comfortable at this point being like, okay, yeah, this is the time and the place. So that's, that's been my experience with the fundraising. So continuing on in this, uh, this question is for Alan, for Tim and for Joe, uh, given that the bulk of psychedelic treatments are not patentable, how do you think this has affected the ability to drive funding to studies? And what do you think big pharma is actually, or, and do you think big pharma is actually opposed to working with these substances as a result? Yeah, that, that may, uh, Alan, feel free to jump in. I feel like that may be in Amy's wheelhouse. Um, but, uh, well, I would mean quickly, I would say big pharma, uh, can't patent these, these um, substances because they've been around for a long, long time. And uh, so they don't have the monetary sort of profit incentive to make this happen. So, I mean, it's just, it's amazing that you've had a group of, of philanthropists uh, support Rick's vision here and, and, and to make this happen on this basis. I mean, it's just incredible when you think about it. I, I also think that the, you know, that it's, I think it's really great that we have a, that there is a nonprofit model and that people like Alan and Tim and have been willing to support that because, you know, psychedelics are very powerful experiences for people. And I think it's, you know, MAPS is going to have something called data exclusivity where for the first six years, they will be the only provider of MDMA. And so they're, they're training and certifying therapists and helping to set up the conditions where people can have really high quality, well-kept experiences as, as Tim was talking about with these being a non-specific amplifier. And so as these things sort of return to society, hopefully in a much more responsible way than, than happened, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just say one more thing too, and that, you know, I don't view pharma as, as evil. I mean, these are businesses comprised of humans with incentives and humans respond to incentives. And if you're putting, you know, Amy could speak to this, but hundreds of millions and billions of dollars into novel drug development that you can protect with intellectual property, you have to very carefully consider for shareholders and everyone involved, the lifetime value of those customers, AKA patients, right? You have to think about the lifetime value uh, or the value over five years, 10 years, et cetera. And in a way, the more effective the treatment, the more curative the treatment, the lower that lifetime value, right? So it's a, it's a very unusual set yeah. of factors that we're considering here where, and I'm not gonna throw any farm under the bus, but if you take like ketamine as an example, it's very interesting. If you divorce the psychedelic effect from ketamine and you turn it into a maintenance drug, the financial profile changes quite a bit and the curative profile may or may not change quite a lot, right? So what we're, what we're currently looking at is a novel structure where, whereby you have a drug development company wholly within a nonprofit that can then route profit back into further research and other things. Uh, so this is one hell of an awesome experiment. I mean, it's a structural innovation as well as a treatment innovation. And that's super exciting to me. I love, I love being 
involved with with things like that because every once in a while, and I've I've seen this quite a few times in my life so far, it really, really, really works. And it it ends up being a proof of concept, not just for the treatment, but for a new model of drug development with these compounds that have been used in some cases for millennia, like psilocybin within psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, so that's that's my two cents. Maybe maybe Amy, Amy do you want to chime in? in? You guys did a great job of answering that question. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's with, I really love this model. I love the idea of protecting the idea of public benefit um, with the model that we've create, created. And I think that with the way this just being a three dose model and something that's not patentable and something where we're looking to maximize public benefit, I don't think it's all that interesting uh, for large pharma. Like you're saying, they're looking to have something that's more ongoing, like the daily doses or something that's a very expensive one-time treatment. But this is, I think, I, I have a feeling this would get a little bit lost in the development program of a large pharma company. Um, and it needed somebody like us to be able to take it through in this way. Yeah, you know, the only example of big pharma is uh, ketamine. And what they've done is they've taken the, the ketamine molecule, which has been around since the 60s and is generic, and then they've separated the isomers, you know, the sort of right hand and left hand, and they patented one of them for depression. And then they can charge hundreds of dollars where the generic is only worth a dollar or two. So a lot of the actual providers in the field are switching to the generic um, ketamine. And I think the other part is pharma doesn't really understand psychotherapy. I mean, they're about physiological mechanisms, um, but we're hoping that they're going to get involved. I think that's what we would like. And I think that's where Tim was trying to get to is if we can prove this concept, then um, other companies may try to improve on MDMA. A tie, which is a, a for-profit company, just contacted me the other day. Um, they thought I would be upset, but I wasn't. But they said that they are planning to start a new company to develop MDMA derivatives that they can patent. And I said, great, if you can do something better than MDMA, um, I want to volunteer to be in your studies and try it. <laughs> um, and in the history of MAPS, we've raised over $100 million now since 1986. And it's just about um, the generosity of people who believe in the healing potential. And without that support, um, we never would be able to be where we're at now. Next question is for Alan. Um, there have been a number of um, high-profile Wall Street people who have been involved in psychedelic research, but most of them have been making their donations anonymously. How did you feel about making your donation um, as publicly as you have been? And what role do you think this will play in helping others who are like you to make other donations? Well, I, you know, the, the hope is that this will bring more people um, sort of into the, into the spotlight supporting this work. Um, as I said to these guys yesterday, the, you know, no one in the general public knows who I am, but there are probably a few uh, philanthropists, hedge fund guys that, that know who I am. And um, I know there are a lot of guys looking at, at, at helping out here. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it is one of the single greatest opportunities to leverage philanthropy for the public good. And, uh, and I guess my personal connection um, uh, to PTSD was, was a reason to, to, to do this really to honor my father. Yeah, okay. I, I'd, Next I'd love, question. Could, I, could I add one thing to that? Uh, number, number one, I just wanna thank Alan because I know that you prefer to stay out of the, out of the limelight, out of the media. So this, this, 
I, I just want to emphasize for people who are seeing Alan here that this is very, very rare. Um, so that also speaks to how, how, how incredibly uh, generous and, and committed he's been to this. And, and I would also say that this is a, this is a rare window Right. And so when I'm having, when I've had calls with folks, I've sometimes drawn the comparison to Catherine McCormick and the develop of oral contraceptives, where for the equivalent of, let's just say $24 million over five to 10 years, and those numbers are not exactly right, but you can do the homework. She more or less single-handedly helped to get oral contraceptives to the point where they were available initially for menstrual disorders. That was the indication. And only later for 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 uh, explicitly contraceptive purposes. And you think of how that that act of philanthropy on an uncrowded bed and how it completely bent the arc of history. There just aren't that many fat pitches like that. There just aren't. You just you just you could wait decades for that kind of pitch that is right down the middle for you, where you have an opportunity to bend the arc of history. And I really feel like this is one of those times. And there just aren't that many. Right, maybe once a decade you get one swing. So I, I, I just want to emphasize that that parallel and comparison I think is quite apt. Yeah, and I think it's it's been interesting seeing even just over the last three years that I've been involved and Rick can comment on this how how much more comfortable people have become about supporting this work and supporting it publicly. You know. We've had people like David Bronner, who runs Dr. Bronner Soap, who's been involved in this for a long, long time and very public supportive of psychedelics. And then you started to have some tech folks and then it's moved to Wall Street. And really, you know, we have people who are the, you know, scions of, of wealthy families. And we have, it's just, it's, it's a great variety of people and it's grown over the years. And I think to echo Tim's point, there's sort of this three-legged stool where you have this chance to have a massive systemic impact. There's a pretty clear path to success. Like FDA is a pretty like clear path that Rick has figured out and yet at the same time being under-resourced. And I think that has really resonated with people. And then also seeing seeing other people sort of come out and support this has given others the, the comfort to do so. Rick, I'm seeing that uh, even after- like who's working with us, uh, you know, just... I was kind of early in this from the pharma world doing work on nights and weekends and not really talking too much about it to now, uh, you know, I'm talking about it all of the time. And I have past colleagues that are joining me um, and institutions that want to be part of this. And how can we have a psychedelic program at this university and this university? So it's changed, you know, in the parts that you're talking about, but also in like the research community too. Sorry, Lewis, go ahead. No, no. These these are great answers. So, um, Rick, after FDA approval, will only MAPS trained therapists be able to administer MDMA in the therapeutic context, and how will they obtain it? Well, the obtaining is uh, the simple part of this, which is they'll obtain it from the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. So that we are a pharmaceutical, or the MPBC is a pharmaceutical company. We have contracts with manufacturers, and encapsulating firms as well. And then we will be providing it to the prescribers. The the first part about only MAPS trained therapists, because the treatment is not the drug, it's the therapy that's assisted by the drug. We're in the process of negotiating with FDA what are called the REMS, which are risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. And they're uh, policy tools that the FDA now can use to customize 
how a drug is let out to market according to the specific risks of that particular drug. So because it's really therapy assisted with MDMA, what we're saying is, and what the FDA really has um, seems to be accepting, is that the only people that have been through the training program that we have developed. And the only people that can prescribe it will also be people that we have trained. And I think that will go forward quite well. Now, we are wanting to eventually embed this training um, in medical schools and in schools of psychology and elsewhere. So we may authorize other people to do the training once we're satisfied that the quality is sufficient to match the um, the educational content that we have in our own training program. But the, the training requirements um, will go forward with this with these um, treatments. And the same, I think, will be true for psilocybin. Of course, it's not true for ketamine. But what we're seeing is that a lot of the therapists that are working with us with MDMA, they want to be cross-trained with psilocybin, with ketamine. And so really it's about the birth of a whole new field of psychotherapy, psychedelic psychotherapy. So it's not going to be like a MAPS clinic or a um, USONA or a COMPASS clinic for psilocybin or a ketamine clinic here. Eventually we're going to be having um, sort of specialized therapists trained from all the different sponsors that are able to customize the treatments for the patients. But the the treatment requirement will sustain um, because it's really key to um, how we demonstrated, or we haven't yet, but how we're trying to demonstrate safety and efficacy. I just want to remind the attendees that we have time for a few more questions if you want to put them into the Q&A. Rick, did you, were uh, you another ready to answer the one about um, the the risks? Oh, um, yeah, I, I'd like to do that for sure. Yeah, I would too. I mean, I would like for you to. Oh. <laughs> like okay. to I can do it also. <laughs> okay, well, you know, for the first, um, from 86, I would say to about uh, 2003, there was big concerns about neurotoxicity from MDMA. Was that a significant risk? And there has been, um, if you go to Medline, uh, the PubMed for uh, scientific papers. There's over 5,000 papers on MDMA or ecstasy, and almost all of them are about risk. And so we, we have an enormous information about the risk profile. Plus, MDMA or psilocybin also is unlike any dr other drug that the FDA has ever approved because these are drugs that are in widespread use. So when FDA approves a drug, they'll approve it after a few thousand people have been studied or a few hundred to a few thousand. But once you market it, then you find the one in 100,000 side effect that does this or that, or the one in 50,000, or the one in half a million. But because tens and tens of millions of people have taken MDMA and also psilocybin, we know the risks already in the riskiest context. So the risk profile is, is very clearly defined. So the main risk, it's not, it's not neurotoxicity. We're only giving it a few times. The, the physiologically, um, MDMA increases blood pressure. Um, not to an alarming extent, but we do screen people for hypertension. And if they have hypertension that's uncontrolled, we um, exclude them. Um, MDMA, um, once they get controlled hypertension, we give them stress tests. And if they can do simple exercise, they can come in. But that's one concern as to the um, blood pressure. MDMA can um, trigger seizures. It almost never happens, but it's conceivable. So we have to be uh, prepared if somebody has a history of epilepsy. Um, MDMA increases temperature mildly, but not in a significant way. So I would say actually the main risks are psychological. If somebody takes MDMA and it brings to the surface traumatic memories and they're not in a supportive context and they say, oh, this is getting bad. Now I'm gonna to try to not look at that. You try to suppress the emotions. 
that's something that is um, potentially problematic. So that's why it has to do a lot with the training of therapists. Now, we're unusual in our studies in that we enroll people who have previously attempted suicide. People that do study PTSD often exclude people that have attempted suicide. Um, and, but we have enrolled people who have attempted suicide and no one who's been in our uh, MDMA groups has actually done so. So I think it's really um, because of the therapy and the therapeutic surround. Um, there are contraindications between administering MDMA with other psychiatric medicines like the SSRIs. They blunt the effects of uh, MDMA. So we require people to taper off of all of their psychiatric medicines before they can be in the studies. We, we do exclude people with psychosis, we currently exclude people with um, bipolar disorder. We exclude people who are schizophrenic, although there's a team at Columbia that's interested in studying MDMA for schizophrenia. MDMA can be integrative, but that would only be done in an inpatient center with kind of more control like that. And so we, we do um, acknowledge that there's risks. The risks are, are substantially greater in the non-medical context. So when people are thinking about what they may have heard about ecstasy users, um, it's really different than the risks and, and so it's going to be up to us to kind of pre, uh, present the data to FDA and they're going to have to decide, do the risks, um, are they outweighed by the benefits? And that'll be up to the FDA. Rick, could I ask you to add something to that? Sorry to interrupt Lewis. Just to add one thing, could you speak to, and this, this just underscores the importance and differentiator that is the context and the intention of working on trauma through MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. But the, the, uh, some people might be wondering about the addiction potential. And yeah. it reminds me of the, the anecdote of multiple participants saying, I have no idea why they call this ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when you come into therapy for trauma, um, that's been very difficult, debilitating. Um, it's not, you like, you take ecstasy, you're happy, all your problems go away, and it doesn't matter anymore. It's, people are actually doing a lot of processing of painful emotions. Um, if, if, if you want to um, see an example of it, Trip of Compassion is a documentary that's uh, focused on three of our Israeli patients with uh, English subtitles, and, and it gives a really good dis, um, portrayal of what the therapeutic situation is and, and why people don't think, oh my God, I'm going to go do this on my own after the therapy. We, we don't see that happening. Um, the, the other thing, pharmacologically, there's some built-in safeguards that prevent uh, long-term uh, patterns of dependence and abuse on MDMA. And that's that it seems to um, fade over time, the effects that MDMA has, so that people who've used it a, a fair number of times report that it's not like the first time. And what that normally happens with a drug for addiction is that you get a tolerance and then you just up the dose. And when, so you see people on enormously high doses sometimes of opiates or cocaine or, you know, amphetamines. But what happens with MDMA is that when you take um, higher and higher doses, you get more of the speedy effects, but not the open-hearted effect. So it doesn't really work. So what we, we don't really think that we has, we think it, everything has a, a, some potential. I would say MDMA has a low potential for um, addiction, particularly when it's used in a, a therapeutic setting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. That was really good. To, and and MDMA is also, also being used to actually study treatment of addiction, like alcoholism. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I think we have time for one last question, which is for Joe and possibly Tim, which is congratulations on this raise. 
Um, what's next for PSFC, and is Tim going to be involved in next in the next raise? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll let Joe go first. <laughs> I think. I think. Yeah. Um, well, I think you know one thing we've seen that's been really amazing is even over the last few years this blossoming of both worthwhile stuff to 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 support in the psychedelic world and as well a lot more interested donors. Um, uh, we've seen a number of university and a following in two efforts Tim worked on Imperial College and Johns Hopkins were now seeing Harvard and UCSF and Yale and Berkeley and a number of top universities starting psychedelic centers. And so we're seeing just a lot more great stuff happening. And what we hope to be able to provide at PSFC is for potential philanthropists who are interested in the space um, to be able to uh, sort of help wade through a lot of different options and figure out how to make their contributions count most effectively. Um, I think that you know, we are, we're definitely going to be working with MAPS on funding the European trials, which lead to globalization, as well as we've been really focused on how do we actually deliver this care to patients. It's one thing to, to get MDMA approved. It's another thing, that, you know, the way I think about it is this is not like a new surgical technique. It's like inventing surgery. Um, Drug-assisted therapy isn't a thing. And so this is really going to revolutionize mental health. And there's, I'm actually, we're been doing interviews with with Amy for a head of commercialization and patient access and maps to really build out an entire new department that's going to figure out how do we train therapists, how do we get clinics up, how do we get insurers to pay for this, um, et cetera. And so we're we're continuing to be focused on, you know, I think that we'll probably not have one singular focus in the way we have with this, but instead helping people to sort through a whole variety of interesting stuff happening in the space. I'll just speak to whether I'll be involved or not very briefly. So uh, much like, you know, I think Alan's general hesitancy or just preference not to be involved with a lot of media speaks to his being here today. I hate fundraising with a passion. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Like I, I, I don't do it for anything. I fucking hate it. I'm just going to use the F bomb because it's appropriate for emphasis. I really hate it. So the only reason that I'm involved or have been involved with the handful of things that I've really put a lot of energy and capital into is because I think they are extremely high leverage and that I can have the largest impact in the initial phases. So I will be involved with this space. I will be studying this space. I will be in many different ways supporting research forever, I think, in some capacity, although my objective is to help push the funding sources from individuals to foundations to larger foundations and ultimately federal uh federal funding i would like to see uh so that larger checks you know tens of millions at a time maybe you know who knows more than that can be dedicated especially when we're looking at the cost of things like opiate addiction or ptsd um, but to the extent possible uh i will avoid uh, smiling and dialing for dollars because I hate it with a passion, but I do it because I think this is extremely important. Okay. Well, we are at the top of the hour, bottom of the hour. We're at the end of the hour, whatever we want to call it. Thank you very much to all of the attendees and we appreciate you all participating. Thank you. Thank you.